Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Thank you all for coming. We, um, uh, Shvat Sameach to everybody. And we're glad to welcome you to this Tu Bishvat Seder that we put together. We have a very special guest, uh, Rav Yehuda HaKohen, who is here from uh, Israel. And he's coming to teach us a little bit about uh, the Torah of Israel. He's involved in the vision movement. We have some brochures over there later you can take home with you. But it's a movement to um, help think about what is the next stage of Jewish history that we can all take part in. So I'm not going to join on for a long time. I'll let him tell a little bit about his background. Um, but we're going to go through a Tu Bishvat Seder and talk a little bit, learn a little Torah, and learn a little bit about uh, what, uh, where we can go from here as Jews um, in America and in Israel and holding hands together. So, Rav Yehuda. Thank you for coming, and thank you for having me. Rav Shmuley, thank you for hosting. And Adam, thank you so much for putting all this together. Uh, it's really great. It's a fantastic spread, and I can't wait to dig in. Um, you know, in our tradition, the, the concept of, uh, of springtime is very much intertwined with redemption, liberation. And we have, we, we have a holiday that's considered the holiday of spring. You guys know what it is? Oh, hold on, hold on. Not, I mean, I know that in Phoenix, Arizona, it feels like springtime here right now, but in much of the world, it doesn't. So the, the holiday that's most associated with spring is Pesach. Pesach takes place not on Tu B'Shvat, but on Tu B'Nisan, on the 15th of the month of Nisan. And the thing about Pesach, Passover, is this. If you're familiar with the story, anybody see the Ten Commandments? Or I guess now Prince of Egypt would be the new... When I was growing up, it was Ten Commandments still. But uh, you see that the creator interferes in world events and essentially like tears nature apart in order to bring the superpower of that era to its knees, right? It's undeniable open miracles that are defying nature and liberating a slave population from a mighty world empire. It's undeniable. Pesach, that's when, that's when nature is flipped on its head. But if you go a little bit further back into the winter, uh, a month back, you get to two bit Adar, the 15th of Adar. Now, at least in cities like Jerusalem, the 15th of Adar is Purim. I think here in Phoenix, it's probably the 14th, right? This was not a walled city in the time of Joshua, right? Uh, so, so here it's the 14th. In Jerusalem, it's the 15th. But the difference in terms of spring in terms of being able to see the redemption in order to be able to see history moving is that Purim is the, the story of Purim, the Megillat Esther, the story of Esther and Mordechai and Achashverosh and Haman and Vashti, etc., is roughly a 10-year story where you don't see the obvious intervention of a divine hand. You see political events, social events, taking place over a roughly 10-year period. And after it's all done, when the story is complete, you can look back on it and you can say, wow, there must have been a divine author to this story, right? 
but it's harder to see. There are people who are able to recognize the miraculous nature of Pesach, but they're not able to recognize the miraculous nature of Purim, right? Because it appears to be just normal human political historical events. Um, this is often contrasted when, when speaking about the rabbis over 100 years ago who opposed and who supported the Zionist movement, right? There were, there were rabbis who said, no, we can't do this for whatever reasons they brought, we can't do this. And then there were Chachamim who said, no, this is how the creator participates in history. And using the Purim story as an example, to be able to see what's happening in the newspapers, in modern events, in contemporary events. But if you go a month back to Tu B'Shvat, to the 15th of Shvat, it's, it, it, it's not even political events. What's taking place are subtle changes beneath the surface, right? And it takes a real deep vision and a real understanding for how the creator uh, in, is involved in the world and is involved in moving history to be able to recognize the, the subtle stirrings taking place, the conditions being created for political and social change. Right? That's Tu B'Shvat. Our sages teach us that what happened on Tu B'Shvat, like what is the event of Tu B'Shvat, simply that the trees stopped drinking from last year's waters and began drinking from this year's waters. They began to drink from new waters. And we're at a point in history now where, you know, I mentioned the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement took us quite far. If you look at the Jewish people today versus 150 years ago, we're really in a completely different situation than we were. Completely different situation. Uh, and a lot of that we can attribute to the success of the Zionist movement. It brought us back to our land. It revived our ancient language. It created the infrastructure for a state. Um, we can debate whether or not it was the Zionists or a group that was kind of parallel to the Zionists that fought the British to free our country. Um, but certainly it radically changed the situation of the Jewish people. But we also have a problem. It succeeded and therefore it by definition ended. Meaning the problems that Zionism set out to solve are no longer our problems. We have different problems. And the problems, the challenges we have today are not challenges that Zionism has the ideological fuel to address. The, the Zionists, if you read, you know, Herzl or Nordau or Jabotinsky or Achada Am or Brokatz Nelson or, uh, or any of these guys, you'll see that the problems they were trying to address were the problems of Jews in a very specific time and place, which is no longer a reality, thanks to their success. So the, the argument I'm making in the spirit of Tu B'Shvat is that we need to begin drinking from new waters. That, that today, you know, I do a lot of work on university campuses here. Uh, despite the fact that I live in Israel, I'm, I'm here maybe more than my wife would like. And I, I work on campuses and I work in a lot of communities with, uh, with, with young, politically active people. And, uh, and I think that part of our problem, you know, if you go to any university campus, 
Um, like, for example, this this week, I'm supposed to be speaking at uh, Columbia University in New York. At Columbia University, but it's not really different from anywhere else. You have the activist community, different groups, different groups of students who are really fighting for some kind of political or social change. And then you have the pro-Israel groups, which are excluded from the activist community. And one of the reasons they're excluded is because they're not fighting for any kind of social or political change. They're simply trying to promote and defend the reputation of a very specific nation state somewhere, right? Like imagine there are a bunch of students on campus always trying to promote and defend South Korea. The assumption would be that these are not young, idealistic organizers. These are agents of the South Korean state, right? And that's, I think, how a lot of the pro-Israel groups are perceived. Uh, and, and sometimes it's even worse because there is like a, a financial connection between Israel's foreign ministry or a strategic affairs ministry and some of these groups, which is they're not really agents of, of the Israeli state, but it could look that way if somebody wants to perceive it that way. Often, you know, when it comes to these things, we see what we want to see, you know, and uh, that's kind of how narratives work. So, you know, so, so my argument is that instead of training young Jews to fight anti-Semitism or defend the state of Israel, we need to be empowering young Jews to really define for themselves, and it's okay if everybody disagrees, but define for themselves what are the next goals of Jewish history. Meaning if Zionism uh, achieved A, B, and C, what is D, E, and F? Right? And it's, and it's okay if we all come to radically different conclusions because back during the Zionist era, we had so many different ideological tendencies, right? There was uh, labor Zionism and revisionist Zionism and cultural Zionism and religious Zionism and all these different forms of Zionism which disagreed with each other, but the friction between them actually propelled us forward and helped us to achieve maybe more than we would have achieved had there not been this tension between them. So it's okay today if young Jews come to different conclusions in terms of what are the goals of Jewish history, what's already been accomplished, what's left to achieve, what obstacles are standing in the way, and, and what can I do to be a character in the story of my people smashing those obstacles. That's okay. Um, we're also living in an incredible moment, an incredibly scary moment, by the way, because there's a lot of change taking place in the state of Israel for those who haven't noticed. I don't know if you guys follow the news in Israel, but we have a we have a new government. And um, for some people, it's very exciting and hopeful. And for some people, it's very frightening. Um, but it's change that can't be argued. There's a change taking place. And we can talk about that more during the meal, what that how we should see that change. What are the different ways to look at this new government and what it means for the state of Israel's trajectory, what it means for certain populations within Israeli society that might not feel as safe as they did before, um, and, and what it means for, for people like me who, who might simultaneously feel a lot of strong agreement and disagreement with people in this new government. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is we need to think about what's next. And that's something we're not doing, not in the state of Israel and not here. We're not thinking about what the next goals of Jewish history are. Um, if we were 
to take that route instead of what we're currently doing, I think we would be able to, uh, you know, the, our young people on campuses wouldn't be just defending the state of Israel, but they would actually be aspiring to some kind of social and political change. This would also make them active participants in Jewish history, which is important. It would make them um, more, to a certain extent, more accepted by the activist community. I mean, there's complications there that we can talk about. Um, but this is, for me, a very fundamental uh, lesson of Tu B'Shvat, because we need to stop drinking from the waters of last year, and we need to start drinking from new waters. Instead of being students of Herzl and Achara Amin Jabotinsky, we need our young people to see themselves as the next Herzl, those who are really formulating and theorizing a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while at the same time cleaning up its mess and really being honest about, you know, sometimes to, to achieve great things, you, you get a little messy, and we did, and maybe we had no other way of achieving what we achieved, but maybe we're at a point, maybe we're strong enough, maybe we're powerful enough at this moment that we can honestly look at some of the things that happened in the past and try to rectify them without making ourselves vulnerable and without moving backwards. So uh, to get us started, on this Tu Bishvat. I guess the first bracha I want to make is on the wheat. I know that some of you guys might have already started with bread, but if anybody would like, we have black and white cookies. And for those who are feeling especially uh, patriotic tonight, we have blue and white cookies. So if uh, one's going to go that way and one's going to go that way. So if anybody has a preference, make yourself heard now. Blue, okay, blue and white's going this way. So blue and white's going to go this way. Black and white's going this way. And uh, you guys can say amen to my bracha. I'll have everyone in mind. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Bore Mine Mizonot. Amen. Now, as we progress, I want to ask everyone a favor. I made my introductory remarks. So at this point, if anybody has anything to add, ask, criticize, push back on, agree with, whatever you want to say. I want you guys to really drive this evening. I don't want to just stand up here and speak to you guys frontally. I'd really like to hear your thoughts. And uh, and if you guys end up fighting with each other, that's also okay. We could flip the camera around and put it on YouTube. <laughs> but, uh, but really, like I, I'd like to hear what you guys think, uh, even you know on the things I've said so far or 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 where it brings you. So, uh, you know, please don't let me hog the spotlight all night. I mean, survival's good, right? But I want more. I'm more ambitious than that. I want more than survival. I, I mean, based on our history, especially Ashkenazi history, like survival is already a big deal. I would actually argue that we sometimes, the Jews, sometimes confuse survival with victory. You know? Yeah, that would be not good. Yeah. Like even even, you know, sometimes I look at 1948 that way. We survived the war, but we think we won the war. We didn't, I, I mean, we didn't lose like the Palestinians did. But if I were to really try to analyze who won the war of 1948, I'd say Jordan and Egypt won the war simply because they got bigger. They conquered more territory. The Jordanians conquered Jerusalem like they're the winners. We lost Jerusalem. We're the losers. We just didn't lose as bad as the Palestinians, and we survived, which was a big deal for us at that time. Right, so I, I want more than survival. 
I think Ellen threw a lot of really, really, really important questions on the table. The first of which, by the way, if I understood correctly, was, I'm, I'm going to say it differently than you did, but I want you to tell me if I'm getting this right. Who is the antagonist in this chapter of Jewish history? Like a hundred years from now, if there's a history book of the Jews, who would be the bad guy in this chapter? Looking backwards, look at, looking at it. Like that was your first question, correct? It's an important question. I think everybody, you know, can think about that on their own. Um, but yeah, like right now, Israel is going through a, a real... Um, like social and political uh, transition, for better or worse, I think it's important to to recognize that if it didn't happen this election, it probably would have happened the next election or the election after, because the the people who are now in power have spent the last few decades having a lot more kids than the people who lost power. Right, so this is like th this seems to be the socio-political trajectory of Israeli society. So my question, I, I guess for me, it's less about how to stop them, and more about how to, um, how to kind of like, maybe, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, steer them, co-op them, co them. <laughs> steer them in a direction that's actually um, not uh, destructive. Right. So because I, but I think they need to be engaged. They need to be worked with. I think the idea of like boycotting the new ministers and all that is not getting us anywhere. So, so before we, before we continue, I think you, you've asked many great questions. I want to raise, I don't know if you know that at the Tubishvat Seder, there are four cups of wine. I don't know if everybody has glasses or wine. Uh, it's optional. You guys can be Yotzi and my wine. And yeah, for those who would like wine, we're starting with white. It's, it's actually much more complicated than Pesach. We start with white. Then we go to kind of like a, a little bit off white, and then we have we have a little more red. We go to like a rosé, and like kind of like white chardonnay, rosé, uh, red. Pass that down. Sure. Sure. And um, this is all very good wine, by the way. I happen to live in wine country. For those who don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the best wine in the land of Israel really comes from my area, and and maybe to accompany the wine, we'll pass out some olives from the this. The wine is from the land of Israel. The olives are from the land of Israel. I can't speak to the cookies. I think they're from Brooklyn. But, uh, but and the dates I brought with me on the plane, it might have not been legal. I don't know if you're allowed to bring fruit into this country, but, but somebody might have told me that after I did it. So we have dates also from the land of Israel. Um, so we got the, you know, the, uh, there's an opinion amongst our sages that the fruits of the land of Israel are like vitamins for the soul. So help yourselves and, and really don't, uh, so if everybody has wine who wants, I'm going to make a bracha on the white wine, right? This is the world of action, Asiya, right? There's my big, if I get too Kabbalistic, you guys reel me in, okay? And sometimes the more wine I have, the higher I go. So uh, don't hesitate to stop me. Baruch Atta Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Bore Priya Geffen. <coughs> mm. Wow, that was good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have, uh, and the olives as well. So everyone help yourself to some olives. We're going to start with olives. Oh, what was that? Did I lose the fork? I lost the fork. Okay, I got another one right here. 
Ah, uh, no, here, here we go. All right. Oh, thank you. There we go. Okay. Baruch Ata Adonai Elohenu Melech Haolam Bore Priya Etz. So we talked a little bit. We of all the things that we we throw out and discuss tonight, you guys can really drive it where you want. Um, we can speak about the new government and what that might mean. That's okay with me. Like, I think that's important. That's what's happening in this moment <clears throat> of our people's story. And it's like an important mo moment. So I don't want to ignore it. But I do feel sometimes it's important to step back and really try to like think about, well, what... It's hard for us because we spent, you know, we, we spent 2,000 years in gas form. We only recently became a solid again, like 75 years ago. Um, we, we weren't really thinking in terms of like, what is our mission in history? I mean, do the Jewish people have a mission in history? I don't know if this is a, an alien concept here, but, uh, but in, in Israel, you know, at least where I learned Torah and where I teach, there's a, like a, a very like foundational, uh, uh, understanding and assumption that we actually have some kind of role to play in human history. We have like a mission in history. Um, to be a light unto the nations, right? Okay, there you go. That I think to be a light unto the nations, um, tikkun olam, right? To fix the world. That's, you know, but uh, the question is how? Like uh, that, these are these are important concepts. These, these are true concepts. I think sometimes we uh, don't focus on, well, what does that mean practically? Uh, and, and again, being in gas form for 2000 years can do that to you, right? You kind of like have these ideas. Yeah, go ahead. What's your name? David. David. I, I think, um, you know, one necessary prerequisite mm -hmm. of life or to change the world, yeah. in my mind, must include all the Jewish people. Okay. Um, and it must involve a mindset of openness to others. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, to move forward, um, it seems in Israel, and in the United States, in, in the, uh, the rest of the world, we need to strengthen a Judaism that's pluralistic mm -hmm. and open, and um, you know, bring the secular Israelis, so-called secular Israelis, because the Israelis I meet who say that they're secular, you know, are not always so secular. Mm -hmm. but I think that they, there's a um, that there's a mindset in Israel that needs to visit that body. Right. I'm going to, this is not part of the Tubish Seder, but before I, I respond to what Dave said, Dave, right? David, David. Dave, I'm sorry, David. I'm just going to, I want to make a bracha on the salad. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Adama. Amen. Um, we still have the beer somewhere, right? We do. Um, yeah, there there is barley. Barley is part of this too. Or if we don't, we don't. Oh, it might be sans barley. Okay. It might be in the fridge at home. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, should be a kapara. Yeah. So, I, I'll I'll I wanna I wanna agree with you, but also maybe go a little further than what you said. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. He spoke about he spoke about the need 
for inclusion, right, within the Jewish people, and that wherever we go next, we have to try to take all of us, all of us need to go on that journey together, essentially, right? And and he spoke also a little bit, uh, and you brought this up too, Ellen, about the different camps or different, I'm going to say tribes in Israeli society. And um, and that sometimes, it, also David said something that I, I really agree with, that this word secular, when we talk about certain Israelis as being secular, it's not an accurate word. It's not an accurate term that we're applying here. Um, and, and I think that's correct. Uh, like deeply correct, I, because I think that we we make a mistake when we look at Israeli society. We make a mistake when we apply um, Western social and political framings to Israeli society. You know, words like secular, religious, left, right, um, conservative, liberal. These are words that are very deeply connected to the development of Western civilization and to different then they mean something very deep and accurate in Western civilization, whether we're talking about uh, Greco-Roman thought, uh, Christian dogma, the revolution, the revolutionary transition between uh, feudalism and capitalism. Like these words like mean something very like deeply concrete in Western civilization. And when you apply them to Israeli society, they actually tend to fall apart. You know, is Israel's political spectrum is not a linear spectrum from liberal to conservative or left to right. Um, I would argue that a more accurate understanding of Israeli society is really through the tribal identities. Right. And this is something our former president, Ruby Rivlin, spoke about a little bit. Uh, he identified four tribes. Um, but I think it's really 12. And I think that all of the tribal identities of ancient Israel, even though we lost most of the tribes, like today, most of us are either from Yehuda, Levi, Shimon, or Binyamin, right? Even though we lost most of the others, um, from a spiritual perspective, those shades of our collective soul are still shining into the world through different Jews. And each one of those tribes can be understood from the Kabbalistic perspective as representing a certain type of Jew. And the two leadership tribes that we see in the Torah are Yehuda and Yosef. Yosef is very good at managing the material world. He's good at finance. He's good at building armies, economies, uh, nation states, kingdoms. Um, he's, very, he's very successful in the world. And he's also very much driven by finding Israel's place among the nations. Um, he likes to focus on what we share in common with other peoples, especially the dominant civilizations of any given period. And we could see this with Yosef himself in Egypt. We can see it uh, later when the kingdom splits, the kingdom of Yehuda and the kingdom of Israel. Israel was for the most part led by a tribesman of Yosef. Uh, and Yosef, the, Israel was a much more uh, important kingdom at that time, economically, diplomatically, militarily. They were really on the world stage. The trade routes ran through their territory. They, they were the dominant kingdom. But Yehuda, which represents the opposite, Yehuda focuses on what's unique about us, our Torah, our Jerusalem, our temple, our mission, prophecy. Yehuda was, for the most part, a landlocked desert kingdom that had very little revel uh, relevance to the international community at the time. 
Like when people dealt with Israel, they were dealing more with the kingdom of Israel. But because we are mostly descendants of the Judean kingdom, we tend to think of it as the more important kingdom. And also they were in Jerusalem and they had the Davidic dynasty. So it, it makes sense. Um, so Yosef, you know, when when the, uh, the uh, Goan of Vilna, he was one of the great rabbis of the last thousand years, he talks about uh, Mashiach ben Yosef. There's a concept of the Messiah from Yosef. And he basically says that it's Zionism. It's the physical, material rebuilding of the Jewish people in our land. The things that look like other nations. We have a nation, we have a flag, we have an army, we have an economy, we have infrastructure and schools and sanitation and transportation, just like every other nation. It's like a cup, right? Like the Zionists, their job is to build a cup, right? We didn't have a cup. And Mashiach ben David, the Davidic Messiah, is meant to fill the cup. Now, I'm personally a very big fan of depersonalizing the concept of Mashiach. Like, I don't think we should see the Mashiach as a person. We should see the Mashiach as an historical process, right? That we can participate in, right? Then, and you know, I can't be the Mashiach, I'm a Kohen, but I could be on his team, right? Uh, so I, I'd like to be on his team. And, and, the, and therefore I could say whoever, you know, when we finally get to wherever we want to go, the person who is the leader of our movement and succeeds, we'll say afterwards, that guy was Mashiach. That's how Maimonides understands it, by the way, right? He says, you don't have to know who the Mashiach is before he does whatever he does. But if you see somebody who's successful and capable and talented, trying to achieve certain political historical goals, you say, okay, that might be the guy. But he doesn't have to be. He could not be the guy, but you still do the things. There's no like mitzvot for Mashiach and mitzvot for me. Everything the Mashiach is supposed to do is like a mitzvah for me to try to accomplish as well. Whoever is like the leader of that movement, ah, whoever is the leader of that movement, we could say retroactively, okay, we can, we can call him the Mashiach if we want, if he's okay with it. Maybe he's shy, doesn't want, you know, modest, doesn't want that title. Uh, but, uh, but really, the, the Vilma Gon talks about this process of Mashiach ben Yosef as the material rebuilding of the nation state, of the Jewish people in our land. Um, and that is, and, and we should understand Yosef as the Zionists. And what what's happening in Israeli society is the Zionists basically, you know, there, there's a very dialectical relationship between the Haskalah, you guys know what the Haskalah is, the Jewish enlightenment? It was like during the, around the time of the French revolution, Jews in countries like Germany and France were offered inclusion and whiteness and citizenship in exchange for our identity, right? Basically, until that moment, until the time of the French Revolution, we were Palestinian refugees. You know, we were living in ghetto communities, isolated from our host nations, living according to like a portable version of the national culture we left behind in Palestine and in Israel, um, telling ourselves we're going to go back. Like that's what we told ourselves. Every Pesach Seder, every wedding, every Yom Kippur, we told ourselves one day we're going to return to our land and we're going to, and we're going to rebuild our civilization, right? That's what we kept telling ourselves. That was like the theme driving Jewish history until the, the Germans and the French and some others offered us to be citizens and to be accepted and to be equal. And then we had a little bit of a, a schism internally. I would argue, you know, I'm, I'm one of, by the way, just disclaimer, I'm happy to share what I think the goals of this next generation are. 
it might help for other people to like just like formulate because it might be too abstract a concept when I say what are the next goals in Jewish history. For me, I've identified three goals that are I think are very important right now. One of them is uh, is reconciliation with the Palestinians. I think that's very, it's crucial for us to be able to move forward at this point. But another one is decolonizing Jewish identity. Like a lot of the work we do at the Vision Movement is really applying post-colonial theory to Jewish identity and Jewish issues. In fact, my wife uh, this evening, I mean, a few hours ago this evening, because she's, I think, what, nine hours ahead of us, uh, she uh, was teaching, uh, she's teaching a fellowship on post-colonial Jewish feminism and trying to actually develop like a, a post-colonial uh, approach to Jewish women's issues um, that I think is revolutionary. Like really, she's like a, an intellectual pioneer. Like nobody's really done this before. And, uh, but I think that it, not just on women's issues, I think on all issues, we should be really applying a lot of post-colonial ideas to our people, to our history, to our situation. Um, and one of the major I think major um, layers of our colonization was this moment when we were offered that inclusion because what happened, meaning the very desire, the very fact that so many of us jumped at the chance to be Europeans, to be French, to be Germans, I, I think was very much driven by the trauma we experienced earlier as a result of not being Germans and French, to, as being other in that society. Meaning if we didn't have the trauma of the persecution that came with not being accepted, acceptance wouldn't have been as attractive as it was. And we certainly, I, I imagine we wouldn't have paid the price we paid for it. And I'm not, and, and by the way, I, I think, the, you know, so first, what did we do? We redefined ourselves. We're no longer refugees from Judea wanting to go home. We became Germans with a religion called Judaism. This is pretty much the invention of Judaism. Judaism is a couple hundred years old, right? We redefined that portable version of our national culture as a religion called Judaism. And we became Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. And then after that, we uh, decided uh, if we're already religion, we're going to be like uh, our neighbors. You know, they have Catholics and they have Presbyterians and they have Methodists and they have... Uh, so, okay, so we're going to have Orthodox and Reform and everything else. And we created all these denominations. Um, and they all, Orthodox included, were really attempts at that time to be able to, um, to uh, eliminate the contradictions between our identity, our culture, our values, and those of the host nation around us, right? There were some different, there were some differences in terms of what we preserve and what we don't preserve. I would argue that even though the Orthodox very zealously guarded the, um, ritual and legal components of our identity, they very much drop the ball on the national and territorial components of our identity. Meaning I think that we, we should understand, you know, we predate a lot of these social constructs when we talk about are Jews a religion, are Jews a race, are Jews a people, are Jews an ethnicity, are Jews a culture, well, what are Jews, right? We predate most of those social constructs. I'd, I'd say we're probably like the Aztecs. Like we're, we have a, we're a civilization that has a territorial component and a, uh, a national component and a ritual component and a spiritual component and a legal component, but we're much more than the sum of those parts, right? And this is, by the way, something that's very hard for people who are not us to understand about us. You know, I've had many conversations with imams about this, you know, because they, they look at us and they just assume anybody who's identified as a Jew is somebody who is, you know, like anybody who's identified as a Muslim is somebody who's actually 
doing Islam, right? They're living Islam. So Muslims get very confused often. He, this is what this imam from Egypt told me. He says, because we look at the Jews, people who are identified in the media as Jews, who identify themselves as Jews, but they're uh, stealing money from people and making money from pornography and doing all like it's, it's confusing for them. Like what, like, what does it mean to be a Jew? And also, it's important to point out that the concept of a Jewish people is very, um, is very hard, especially for Palestinians, because we Israelis and Palestinians are very good at denying each other's identities. You know, so that's how, that's what they deny about us. They're like, yes, they're Jews, but you're not a people, right? And certainly not from here. Like that's hard for them. Um, but but I think that that's that's actually probably a good place for me. I just want to mention this notion of narratives because I think that's very important when we talk about Israelis and Palestinians. We're living in our subjective uh, experience of the last hundred years. We're both um, telling the truth about ourselves and completely getting it wrong about the other. Like we both have this habit of like superimposing identities and motivations and uh, ideologies on the other that have nothing to do with what the other is experiencing. Um, the way I would define a narrative is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen, contextualized within an ideological worldview and organized to tell a story. And there are millions of facts when it comes to the last hundred years in our country. But we're both selecting the facts that support the story we want to tell and omitting the facts that complicate the story we want to tell. And we both, in both Israeli society and Palestinian society, there is this principled resistance, principled ignorance of the other's story. Like it's actually a sign of weakness in both societies to, to learn about the identities and experiences and narrative of the other. Sometimes even betrayal. That, I think that's probably one of the major barriers to reconciliation right now is to even make the effort to understand the other is considered weakness in one's own community. And it's both ways, in both directions. And it leads not only to an inability to make peace, it also leads to counterproductive methods of struggle if we just want to win or if they want to win. Like we both end up adopting um, ways of fighting the other that is that is really crafted around our fantasy of who the other is and what they want and not who they actually are in their own experience. And it's going in both directions. So that's just something I, I think uh, we need to overcome. But when it comes to this question of decolonizing a Jewish identity, uh, we should look at it like this. Uh, Alex, where did you grow up? Minnesota. In Minnesota, okay. So let's say that when Alex, with Adam. Yeah. okay, <laughs> can I use you for something? Sure. Okay. Let's say Alex is twelve years old, in Minnesota, and a bunch of uh, a bunch of ninjas from Japan come and take over his house. Okay, uh, he doesn't like it, but they have you know big katana blades and ninja stars and nunchucks, and there's not much that Alex can do at twelve years old. So they accept it, and the ninjas go ahead and rearrange the furniture. And they force a Japanese diet on Alex's family, which is actually very healthy. It's not a bad thing. And they force the family to listen to Japanese music exclusively. Okay. A few years go by. Let's say Alex is 17 now and he's had enough. And he decides he's going to fight the ninjas and free his home. And you know what? He does it. I don't know how, but Alex manages to take on the ninjas and throw them out of his home. And now his family is free. His home is free. But now his family has to ask a question, a couple questions. The first question is, where did the furniture used to be? And the second question is, do we or do we not want to put it back? Or maybe partially. 
right? The same with the music, right? Alex might feel that Japanese music is the music of the oppressor. But at the same time, he's, he was 12, now he's 17. He might have had, you know, some coming of age experiences against the backdrop of that soundtrack. There might be nostalgia triggered by that Japanese music that he doesn't want to let go of. Same with the cuisine. His body got used to eating sushi all the time. What, is he going to switch to hamburgers? Is that better? So the, this is the post-colonial conversation that the Israel has not had yet. Every nation that experiences liberation needs to engage in a post-colonial conversation. We didn't do that. You know what we did? We took down the British flag and we put a Jewish flag on a British colonial system and we called it a Jewish state and we never had the real conversations that we need to have. And that is, I think, one of the reasons we landed at this historic moment in Israeli society and in Israeli politics because we didn't have the conversations that we need to have and now we're going to be forced to have them. We haven't even asked ourselves, what does it mean to have a Jewish state beyond some superficial decorations and a demographic majority? What does it really mean for a state to be Jewish? What is the role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society, right? What, what does a Jewish economy look like, right? Like these are questions we never asked. We just kind of continued the British colonial system with the Jewish decorations and we called it a Jewish state. And now we're going to have to have those very, very real conversations. And, and you know what? That might not be a bad thing. Like my, we, the fact that history is forcing us to have those conversations is, is good for us. It's good for our national development. Uh, and I think that even though uh, David made the point that wherever we go from here needs to uh, happen collectively, right? It can't just be, you know, some of us move in this direction and some of us move in that direction, although that could happen. Um, I, I think it's also important to keep in mind, for better or worse, that in our history, it's usually a very radical minority that advances things forward, at least at first. Right. It's usually a radical minority that kind of like starts any, you know, any challenge to the status quo and any revolutionary momentum forward. And if they're good at it, they'll bring more and more people in with them as they go. A great example, by the way, is uh, is the Lehi. You guys know what the Lehi was, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, the Stern group, Stern gang. Right. They they started fighting the British Empire around 1939, 1940, everybody thought they were crazy. They identified the British as the enemy, right? The enemy that was occupying our land and needs to be fought. And uh, nobody really agreed with them at the time. But then in 1944, Menachem Begin uh, said, you know what, we're gonna start fighting the British, right? And meaning they were able to drag the Etzel, the Irgun Svalumi behind them. And even in 1946, for a little while, you had the Haganah and the Palmach fighting the British in their own way as well. Meaning eventually this small radical group, as crazy as they looked at the beginning, were able to drag the entire Jewish community of Palestine behind them into a war with, with the British Empire, right? So if, if we're good at this, we can do that. We're able to drag the rest of the Jews behind us and get everybody on board and, and have it make sense. But, uh, but sometimes, you know, you see a lot of small radical groups not able to do that. And, uh, and that could be very dangerous. You know, so uh, anyway, we're up to barley, right? This is the barley. Yeah. This is the barley. I'm going to take a tiny bit, make a bracha, pass it around. Um, and uh, and I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, but one thing I want to throw out there also, a, a very important um, point that I think uh, needs to be uh, understood. Right now, when you look at young politically, a politically engaged Jews on university campuses, there's basically two groups. 
You want some? Um, there are there are the politically active Jews who are very connected to Jewish identity, to the state of Israel, to the land of Israel, to our people's story, and to fighting anti-Semitism. But they're almost uh, completely clueless when it comes to systems of oppression and the challenges facing other peoples, you know, and the oppression that other peoples have to, uh, to struggle against. And then you have another group who are showing up for almost every oppressed people and, and understand very well how systems of oppression work, but they have almost no connection to their own identity, to the land of Israel, to the Torah, nothing. And what we try to do at the Vision Movement is create a critical mass of young Jewish leaders who are simultaneously rooted in their own identity and conscious of how systems of oppression work and, and what challenges other people's face so that they can show up for other peoples as their full selves. And I think that's an important, um, I think for, for me, that's a very important feature of the work that we're doing and work that needs to be done even beyond what we're doing because uh, because I think that uh, that's, you know, in terms of what David said, that's a way to kind of create the space for these two very divergent camps of the next generation to actually be able to come back together. Because otherwise we're moving in, especially in this country, like young politically active Jews in this country are moving in two completely different directions. And if we can create that space for somebody to be a, a strong, proud Jew with a deep identity and connection to their past and, and to their destiny, uh, while at the same time able to, to recognize the injustices being perpetrated against other peoples and show up to combat those injustices, then we're able to create space for those two uh, divergent paths to actually reunite. Okay, I'm going to just make a bracha on the barley, whoever is uh, joining me. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam the most of just to be clear i think there are several groups right now that we can identify that feel threatened directly by this new government okay one is obviously palestinians uh one might be uh lgbtq people one might be african asylum seekers another might be people who identify as jews but aren't recognized as jews according to how we've defined that for thousands of years right and there are other groups too, but let's... Now, the people who comprise the new government and their voters are clearly rejecting the liberal Western answers to those people's needs. But they're not formulating Jewish answers. They're just kind of rejecting without offering any counter offer. Meaning, I, I think that the work that needs to be done uh, by the people who are now in power and their voters is to really formulate like deeply Jewish answers um, regarding these groups and their needs that could actually compete with the liberal Western answers on their own ideological turf, right? And I believe that can happen. I've personally only done the work on Palestinian issues. I can't really speak deeply um, on the other groups. I think that work needs to be done. And, and my wife is, you know, Baruch Hashem, doing some of it. But uh, and, and we have a movement of people like that's part of what vision does is formulate, try to formulate these ideas. But um, but I, I I'm sorry, Palestinian. Right. So I, I've personally spent about, uh, I guess, 13, almost 14 years um, working on 
reconciliation with Palestinians kind of happened to me by accident. Just to tell you a little bit about my background, I I moved to Israel. I dropped out of university when the second intifada started um, because I didn't feel comfortable with the idea that I was supposed to earn a degree while Jews my age were going to fight in Israel. So I had been born and raised in Manhattan, son of immigrants, and uh, I went. I dropped out of school. I went. Uh, they don't give you a gun at the airport. You know, you have a draft process, which makes sense. And I uh, I went to yeshiva, a place called Machon Meir. It's a yeshiva that uh, goes according to the uh, teachings of Rav Kook. Uh, I'm a teacher there now. I, I teach in that yeshiva now. Um, and I got very politically active between my arrival and when I drafted into the army. I used to uh, I used to do a lot of things. Um, but uh, one of the things I was very active in doing was creating new Jewish communities on different mountains in the West Bank. And then after the army, I went to East Jerusalem to a neighborhood called Ras Alamud, and I spent four years uh, creating a new Jewish neighborhood there. But when I lived there, I didn't want to live as a settler. I didn't want to live as a colonizer. I didn't like the idea of living behind walls and, and armed guards and all that. That didn't feel correct to me uh, for a number of reasons. So I, I walked around. I made an effort to walk around, go shop in the store, bring my car to the garage and, and try to as much as possible, um, like socialize or, or, or have interactions with the Palestinians who live in that neighborhood. And I started to understand that they have a story too. They're not just the antagonist in my story. They actually have a story. Um, in the beginning, it was a little hard to, you know, in the beginning, the, the, the easiest thing is to say, yes, they're suffering because of Mahmoud Abbas. Yes, they're suffering because of the PA. You know, you, it's hard to, it takes a while to get to the point where you could acknowledge what you contribute to or what I contribute to, um, to their situation. Um, but by the time I left that neighborhood in 2009, I was involved in organizing like dialogue sessions specifically. Well, we, we were considered to be doing alternative peace work because at that time, peace work was mostly, for the most part, it was associated with European funded NGOs that were working towards a two state solution. And the first reason we were considered alternative is because we uh, outright rejected the two state paradigm. We believed that uh, we didn't want any involvement from outsiders, whether it's European governments, Christian evangelicals. We wanted only Jews and Palestinians to be involved in the work we're doing and the fu funding of the work we're doing. We, we didn't want outside agendas uh, playing a role. Um, second reason we're considered alternative is because we rejected the idea that peace could be achieved by bringing the westernized moderates together to sign an American piece of paper, that the only way to really change things, in our opinion, was to bring the quote unquote extremists from both sides together, those who had been marginalized from the peace process uh, and who are obviously going to torpedo it, including me. I'm, I'm one of those people, right, that the extremists have to be brought to the table to understand each other and try to find some kind of uh, shared struggle. And the third reason we are considered alternative is because we rejected the idea that peace could be achieved by forcing either people to compromise on anything fundamentally important to us, that the only way to really achieve peace really is to create a, a political reality that is subjectively experienced by both peoples as a happy ending, as a victory of sorts. 
Um, and that requires us to really unpack both narratives and to really understand the grievances and aspirations of both sides. So whatever I say about where I think we need to go is just based on my own anecdotal experiences working with Palestinians since 2009 and and whatever I think, again, I don't want to speak for anyone, but but my perception of what's important and less important to them, what's important to to me as a Jew living in the West Bank and who wants to who wants more Jews to live in the West Bank. I just have a problem with how we're living in the West Bank and how that affects other people. But at the end of the day, like being honest and being historically accurate, the West Bank is the cradle of Jewish civilization. These are the places that we see. I don't know if the plane interferes with the microphone, but um, th these are the places that we spent 2,000 years dreaming of coming home to. Places like Hebron, places like Jerusalem, places like Bethel and Shechem and Shiloh and Beth and, and Jericho, etc. Like these are the place we weren't really thinking about Netanya and Haifa and Hadera and Tel Aviv you know, uh, a thousand years ago in the exile. We were thinking about the places that were most historically relevant to us. Uh, so so I think that right now, um, I would say that Israel is essentially a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations. And those Jewish decorations are way too Jewish for the Palestinians and not Jewish enough for some of the fastest-growing uh, Israeli populations. Like, for example, the Haredim. We have to accept the fact that the Haredim, everybody knows what Haredim are? Okay, so we have to accept the fact that the Haredim are the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. Like, you know, there's not, I know there's some, you know, political figures who try to find ways to stop that or or change them and all that, but for the most part, that's not, that's not going to happen. They're going to continue growing. But the truth is, we also have to be conscious of something else. When Haredim become a critical mass and enter society, they stop being Haredim. Like, I would say that right now, Haredim are the tribe of Yisachar, right? Yisachar is very committed to teaching and learning Torah, but is not very interested in politics or commerce or anything like that. He's got a brother, Zvulun, to support him. But uh, but when Haredim enter Israeli society, they tend to become Shimon. Shimon is an extreme expression of Yehuda that I would say is, I, I guess we can call them the Kahanistim. You guys know what Kahanism is? Yeah? No. Okay, it's like the, uh, it's like the uh, ideology of Rabbi Meir Kahana. Okay? So we'd say Kahanism is nationalism for Haredim. But essentially what it is, meaning Rabbi Kahana himself came from a Haredi Torah background and, and blended it with nationalism. And that's what he got. And when the Haredi population, again, the fastest growing population in our country, be, starts to enter society, the most... And if you go to an Itamar Ben-Gvir rally, you'll see the majority of people there are young Haredi men. Right, so this is important. We, we, when we talk about solutions or we talk about the future, we have to really have our finger on the pulse of Israeli society and know the socio-cultural trajectory of the society. So that's important to keep in mind. But by the way, just because they become Kahanistim doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be antagonistic towards Palestinians. Meaning they could theoretically have the identity of Kahanistim without being enemies of the Palestinians. In theory, that could exist, but that takes work. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I think it's important to separate between identity and, and political positions. Like, for example, when it comes to like, a, like you guys know who Bezalel Smotrich is? No. 
uh, he's the leader of the party that's scaring everybody. He's our new finance minister. So, so honestly, um, he comes from the world that I live in, right? He's, he actually, his parents actually live in the town under my mountain, um, meaning my kids probably go to the same schools that he went to. And I teach in some of the same schools that he might've gone through. Um, like I'm very much part of that world. I agree with him when it comes to his understanding of Jewish identity, Jewish history, our connection to our land, like uh, like the purpose of Israel in, in history. I just happen to disagree with a lot of his political positions, but we share and I, meaning I, I disagree with his conclusions, but uh, but we're, we're functioning from the same set of assumptions. We've just gone somewhere different. Uh, and I think that it's, it's important to be able to make that this connection between identity and politics sometimes, because because I actually believe that people like Smotrich and his voters are actually much better equipped to solve our conflict with the Palestinians than Yair Lapid's voters. Because if one of Yair Lapid's voters, honestly, if one of Yair Lapid's voters were to look at what we did to the Palestinians from their perspective, they might just become anti-Israel. But one of Smotrich's voters is deeply rooted in his own people's story, stretching back thousands of years and what we've wanted for thousands of years and the things we say three times a day in the tefillot, et cetera, that they could theoretically look at, like, like I did at the Palestinian story without losing their own identity or their own story. So I think the that it part of my job as when I organize these dialogue sessions is to try to bring, I'm, I'm not targeting the the like low-hanging fruit. I'm actually trying to bring the Smotrich and Ben Gvir voters to meet with Palestinians and engage with their narrative and vice versa. Because I also think that's the story the Palestinians need to hear from us. Like, I don't think they're impressed by what a Benny Gantz voter has to say or what a Yair Lapid voter has to say. I think the Palestinians, in, in my experience, are much more um, able to connect to and understand what a Smotrich voter has to say. It's it's a more familiar story. It makes more sense, um, and, and it it uh, and it doesn't. It's harder to kind of cast as just like a Western colonial project, whereas the Gans and the Pete voters. Um, that's an important question, but I want if it's okay. I know I'm, my answers are so long, and if you guys get um, impatient with me, say so. But I'm just I'm building ideas, and I want to just finish my answer to Rabbi Wasserman. I apologize. So, but you but please remind me to go there next okay thank you um so i think right now we have a, a state that's basically um the jewish identity of our state right now is very hard and very shallow it doesn't it's not jewish enough for the haredim and it's too jewish for the palestinians i would like to see our jewish character become soft and deep so every haredi child sees the jewishness of the state and all of the policies and institutions but Palestinians and even Jews without a Jewish education don't see it. Meaning that from a Palestinian perspective, it should just be a democratic society where they have full equality. And a Haredi child or Haredi adult would look at some of the ways in which the state is organized and be like, oh yeah, that's in the Mishnah. Oh yeah, that's in the Gemara. Meaning not in a way that's like othering or coercive, but just, you know, just like we returned to Palestine and not Uganda, just like Israeli society speaks Hebrew and not German, like Herzl thought we would, there are a lot of features of our identity that we should still be returning to. Like, for example, if your dog damages my bicycle, 
and we go to court in Jerusalem, should the judge rule according to British common law or according to Bavakama? Right? Now, if he rules according to Bavakama, it's not religious. He's not coercing our behavior. He's not making us observant Jews. But he's ruling according to what our people for hundreds and hundreds of years decided through a, a long uh, process uh, is justice in this situation. And I don't think that like when because we put all of our civilization in this little box and eventually called it Judaism and made it a religion, even like the legal features of our identity that have nothing to do with spiritual values or whatever, but just like what is justice if your property damages my property, like like that somehow found its way into the category of religion instead of being understood as our legal structure. So something like that would make the state more deeply Jewish, but wouldn't privilege Jews over non-Jews and wouldn't coerce anyone's behavior. So I think that if we make the, the Jewish character softer and deeper than it is right now, um, that, that's one of the things. I mean, that doesn't answer the question about how we go about reconciling with the Palestinians and what steps need to be taken for us to be able to live together. Once. I really wanted you to skip to the end. Oh, I'm sorry. And to, and to describe, describe the Israel of your vision. Could I actually add on to Rob? I want to question, maybe to ask something more clarifying. Okay. Could you? So what you're talking about in response to Rob, I want to make it very theoretical. Yes. And academic. Could you? I apologize. No, no, that's true. All right. Provide a a practical example, I guess, and I don't know if this will help answer the question. Did the Baba Kama thing not? No. No. Example of you live in the West Bank. Yes. Up on a hill. Yes. What is the ideal situation mm -hmm. for you mm -hmm. in the future under this kind of theory of how Jews and Palestinians live in this West Bank together? Mm -hmm. Well, sir, without going deeper into the lying in other areas, how does that work? Yeah. Uh, well, in my in my vision, we we're living together um, with the same access to the wealth and resources of the country without checkpoints and walls, without restrictions on anybody's freedom of movement, without any military bureaucracy controlling anybody's lives, um, with everybody having the same also access, not just to things like water, but the political process uh, and, uh, and and civil servants making the same salaries, for example, like right now a policeman or a bus driver living under the PA is making about a quarter of what a policeman or a bus driver is making in Israel. Um, so I think just kind of leveling all of that. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a difficult process. Me saying it will sound nice. We can talk about how to get there if you like. But ultimately, what I'd like to see is a situation where we're living together as allies in the country. Um, we have a strong identity. They have a strong identity. We respect each other. We care about what's important to each other. And if anybody messes with the other, we come to their rescue. Uh, under, under the historic Jewish law? Um, well, I'd say the state should be structured, including the, the status of a non-Jew in a Jewish society. Um, like, for example, we don't know what that looks like. We have a concept of Girtoshav. Right. There's a concept in the Torah of Girtoshav, what how a, a non-Jewish population should be treated and experienced living in a Jewish country. Right. Um, actually, yesterday, the Haftorah uh, in, in the Haftorah was the song of Dvorah, right? The story of Dvorah and the song of Dvorah. 
And Dvorah actually had her Beit Midrash on my mountain, by the way. The mountain I live in was Dvorah's headquarters. And in addition to many other things. And uh, one of the heroes of that story is a woman named Yael. Now, Yael was not a Jew. Yael was a non-Jewish woman that was part of a non-Jewish population living in our country that was allied to us. And she did something that made her a hero of Jewish history to the point that thousands of years later, Jews are still naming their daughters Yael, right? Meaning there is like a dignified place of a non-Jew as an ally living in our country, but we haven't explored it because we're only talking about whether we're going to accept or reject the Western framework for how to deal with these issues and not thinking that maybe we have something to offer, not just to ourselves, maybe to the world. Maybe if we were to create frameworks for how populations that are different living in the same land, et cetera, can live together, maybe there are other societies in the world that are struggling with this that would say, hey, wait a minute, they got something right in Israel. Maybe we could try that here. So, think about different, if you're talking about a quality that people are where people are equal under the law, regardless of their ethnicity. Yeah. There really is no Jewish framework for that. No well, how do you know? I don't agree. I think that we need to explore deeper and deeper and deeper into our own sources until we find it. You mentioned, you mentioned the concept of, you mentioned the category of here Christian. Right. But that's, that's the opposite of what we're struggling Well, that's, we we don't know that. That's the, a category that that predicts that, that about people who are who are dependent on. No, see, the, see, the I kindness of them. Of the, of, I I would say this, I I don't have a right to the land. I have a my understanding. I have a responsibility to the land. I have an obligation to the land and every human being in it. Okay, I have to make sure there's justice in the land for every human being. Like instead of. Israel taking uh, the water of the West Bank, this is in the Oslo Accords, Israel takes the water from the West Bank, gives 20% to the Palestinian Authority to distribute amongst the Palestinians under their control. We take 80% of the water for our use. Um, and I have a lot of Palestinian friends who don't have running water in their taps, different, especially in the summer. Now, instead of playing that game, I would much prefer that Israel just be responsible for distributing water to every home in the country, Palestinian or Jewish. I would rather Israel pay civil, like Smotrich did something a few weeks ago. He took the money from the PA and he gave it to the families of Jewish terror victims, like Jewish victims of Palestinian terror. That, that's what he did. Now, I said, Smotrich, instead of doing that, why doesn't he take that money Take it away from the PA. I don't have a problem with that. He wants to see the PA collapse. I don't disagree with him. But the best way to do it is to directly pay Palestinian civil servants and give them an Israeli-level salary. Not, not the Palestinian-level salary, but the Israeli-level salary. And believe me, that will make the PA irrelevant faster than anything else. Um, right now, we don't know that my point is we don't know what Ger Toshav looks like in the 21st century because we haven't had it in thousands of years. My suggestion would be that we should try to explore what Gertoshav really means with all the sources and do our best to stretch, not break, but stretch the halacha to make the concept of Gertoshav meet what Palestinians really deeply want. And obviously that requires us to engage with Palestinians and figure out what they deeply really want. But that is, when I talk about Gertoshav, I'm talking about a framework that actually addresses their grievances and helps them to achieve what they say they want. Uh, and so that takes work. 
Meaning that's not that's not like uh, we're going to sit here tonight and and look at the you know look at what the Rambam says and look, but it means that actually thinking about like what that could what that could be in the context of the 21st century because humanity has evolved and advanced since the last time we had a Ger Toshav living in our country. And that's what I think we should be doing with everything. Also, our economy. What does a Jewish economy look like? You know, what does a banking system in a Jewish state look like? Should it charge interest or should it not charge interest? What What about uh, selling weapons to human rights violators? Should we be selling weapons to South Sudan and Cameroon and uh, and the Philippines? Should uh, Should Shimon Peres have sold weapons to Rwanda during the genocide? Should our Supreme Court have kept it quiet? And, you know, our Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that everybody's talking about is like the defenders of human rights and democracy right now, they only a few months ago ruled that the public has no right to know who Israeli arms companies are selling weapons to. Right? Meaning, for me, that's not an expression of Jewish identity or Jewish values. And uh, and it's easy. It's like low hanging fruit to say, oh, well, look what the Hilltop Youth are doing. Isn't that uh, an embarrassment? But what about what Benny Gantz's friends in the in the weapons industry are doing? And what and our Supreme Court covering it up and keeping uh, the public uh, in the dark about it? Like, like like to me, like like a lot of people are getting murdered with our weapons, and Israelis are making money from that, and no one's allowed to talk about it. Right? So I think we need to be honest. And I think that when we, and I, and I think also like what, what you said before, Rabbi Wasserman, that there's only liberal, there's only like the liberal Western answer to, to these problems. I agree with that so far. But, but I do believe that Israel came back to life in order to produce something new. Every time we've had power in history, we've given something to humanity we've contributed to the development of human civilization like even the concept of a weekend is something that we gave humanity coming out of egypt as a slave nation that was suddenly free we we gave the world a weekend and i think that now that we have power again for the first time in thousands of years first of all we need to become comfortable with power we're not comfortable with power some of us want to fetishize it and overuse it some of us want to just drop it and run away from it we're not comfortable with power but when we become comfortable with power um, and comfortable and 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 kind of experience a little bit of this decolonization process and become comfortable with our own identity, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to produce things that actually inspire the rest of the world. Like that that's the that's the direction I believe somebody mentioned before being a light unto nations or tikkun olam. Like, okay, how do you do that? Like, is the state of Israel this minute a light to the nations? Was it 30 years ago a light to the nations? Was it 50 years ago a light to the nations? I don't think so. But I think we need to make moves to get there. Like, that's the, that, that is the aspiration, that the Israel that comes back to life doesn't just come back to life for the sake of the Jews that have been persecuted for thousands of years, but comes back to life for the sake of mankind. Um, and, and I'll give you a... a an analogy from the Tanakh. Uh, I consider our Tanakh to be prophecy, not just one-time prophecy, but you know, we had thousands of prophets running around our country once upon a time, but the only prophets whose prophecies were recorded in the Tanakh were the ones whose prophecies are relevant for all time, for our generation. So, but you have to know how to read it. So when we look at the first three kings of Israel, Shaul, David, and Shlomo, we can see a lot 
of our own national development there. Shaul is like Zionism. King Saul, he wants Jewish unity. He wants security. He wants a good economy. He wants Israel to be a strong nation like the other nations. That's Shaul's uh, agenda. And he's good at it. But then comes David. David is like the national religious. David is like the Smotrich and the Ben Gvir voter. Like David is a, is a great warrior. He goes to the war. Like most of our combat, low-level combat officers are coming from the national religious community. Like they used to be kibbutznikim. Now they're not. Um, he, he wants to build a temple, right? But he can't. David can't build a temple. Only Shlomo could build a temple, his son Solomon. And because he is not focused on narrow Jewish nationalism, but he's focused on Hebrew universalism. He's focused on what Israel can contribute to humanity now that we have power, now that we're back on the stage of history, now that we're, now that we're like a nation amongst the family of nations. And if you look at, if you look at the last political act of David before the transition to Shlomo, he acknowledges and tries to rectify the crimes of Zionism against the Palestinians. He acknowledges and tries to rectify the crimes of Shaul against the Givonim, against the non-Jews living under Israel. And it's only then, and it has to be David, that's the catch here, it can't be Shaul. Meaning, if, like I said before, if Merav Mechaeli's voters or Benny Gantz's voters confront the Palestinian story, they just lose their identity. It has to be the ones who voted for Smotrich who confront the Palestinian story, really confront it. And that will lead us to Hebrew universalism. And that's the, that's the um, challenge here because they're not interested. Meaning, like, like when I talk to, you know, when I, I, I go through this with my neighbors, I go through this with my students and my teachers and my colleagues, et cetera. It's not always easy to get a Jew living in a place like where I live or teaching in a school like where I teach to come and uh, meet with Palestinians and really listen with an open mind. It's hard. Do you believe that you can take the xenophobia out of I'm, um, uh, yes, but yes, but I also, I, I also think that in my experience, Kahanistim, um, their, their, their hatred for Palestinians is based more on the fact that they think Palestinians are the enemy who want to kill them and less on the fact that, you know, th that of their race or ethnicity or anything like that. Like they really believe that Palestinians are the, or Arabs, they don't say Palestinians. They really believe that Arabs are the enemy who've been trying to kill us for over a hundred years and we have to be strong and those Jews who don't see it are just weak and blah, blah, blah. That's how they see it. It's not because, it's not racism. It's more like ethnic beef. Like, honestly, like I think that that's more, if there is no conflict, if there is no history of violence, if there's no, then I don't think most Kahanistim would take the positions they take against Arabs. So I don't know if that's a short answer to your question. Um, but I, I think what we need to do, just to put it in one sentence, is change the roles we play in each other's stories. Like, like instead of the, the role that Palestinians play in my narrative, or, or most Jews like me, maybe not mine, because I've already gone through this process a little bit, but the role Palestinians play in the Jewish or the Israeli narrative is one of the antagonist. The role that we play in their story is one of antagonist. I want to, part of what I see my role 
is of doing is creating a bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives, where we can be co-protagonists in the same story instead of antagonists in each other's stories. And and I think that in my experience, it's doable, but but I am an optimist. I mean, that, that's part of the problem. I am, you know, Baruch Hashem, I am a big optimist. And, uh, you know, and, and therefore I... I, I I see this as really uh, the only path forward, really. Like, I can't think of another. What, what's the other path forward? To, to divide the country in two and give them a state in the West Bank? What's that going to solve? So you, you believe that the Palestinians your papers talk about would accept being in Israel? Um, for, yeah, if they're, they're equal, yes. But I think the term, but the term is, but no, 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 you don't, no, 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 no. I, I think that it, Meaning the way you worded it kind of like uh, threw me off because I think it's not about becoming an Israeli. I think we make the mistake when we think that the solution is to create some like civic national identity that we could all share, like American or Canadian. Because we're very, it's a different part of the world and we're different types of people. And we're really both very connected to our identities. And, but we also have layers of identity. You know, like I'm a Kohen. I'm also a Jew, I'm also an Israeli, I'm also a Semite, I'm also a human. Like we have layers of identity. We and the Palestinians. You know, a lot of Palestinians are like, you know, a Palestinian from Hebron is Khalili and he's Palestinian and he's Arab and he's Muslim and he's a Semite and he's a human, right? Like we have layers of identity. I think it's important that we have at least one layer of identity that we share, but I don't think we need to make them not Palestinians. Like, in fact, I think that we need to acknowledge that the- How do you do that? You have one state. Talking about a one state solution. Mm -hmm. Israel was formed by Zionists. Mm -hmm. But it has to evolve. Huh? It has to evolve. And I think it has to evolve in a way that's included, like the Druzim, for example. The Dru I, I, mean, I love the idea of the inclusive mm -hmm. sharing. Where are the dates? Oh, right. I mean, it, it's, yeah, look, the, I, look, I, I can't argue with you not being able to see it. <laughs> but, uh, and it could be that, you know, look, most people who hear me the first time think I'm nuts. I don't think you're crazy. But uh, just so you guys know, we do have a we do have an online magazine in English. I do have a podcast. Um, we have several podcasts on our magazine. I invite you guys to check us out. It's visionmag.org. A lot of these conversations are are fluid and ongoing and taking place there. But I, I really do think that um, the relationship we have with the Jerusalem right now, which is like, they are our allies. We live in the country together. We're not them. They're not us, but we're two populations. By the way, throughout, you know, in Syria, in Iraq, like people are very connected to their identities, like different groups, Alawites, Kurds, you know, uh, Armenians, uh, Shiites, Sunnis, like, like you have different groups that are very deeply connected to their identities. That's something the British and French didn't understand when they started drawing lines on maps. No, I'm not doing anything to make us vulnerable. I don't think anything I said makes us vulnerable. I think it makes us stronger. I don't mind if they call it Palestine. I, the Torah calls our land Eretz Canaan over and over and over again. Doesn't threaten me. But that's but that's different than being in your own country where the host culture is your culture. And you said you don't mind if it's called Palestine. I don't mind if people call it that. No, if they have more kids than we do. But I think the Haredim are kind of going to block that anyway. <laughs> it's pretty close. But I but I don't. But to answer your question, I don't mind because I don't think I. I I don't think we should be basing the Jewishness of our state on the demographic majority issue. Meaning I, I, I want to move away because 
Look, I don't know whose numbers are right. All numbers are politicized. But whatever solution we come to has to make demography irrelevant. We have to create structures. Like, I'll give you an example. Right now, we have a uh, representative democracy. People vote. You have your party, whatever. We have a parliamentary system that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. It's a British system that uh, that doesn't really fit our identity, right? We say, what did she say? She said three Jews, five opinions, or two Jews, three opinions. They should probably lower the threshold to express that better. Lower the yeah, lower the threshold to express it better. I mean, if you say two Jews, three opinions, and maybe we should be lowering the threshold might be a better expression of our identity. But um, but I would actually favor a participatory democracy. I think in this week's Parsha, Parshat Yitro, we're presented with a model of participatory democracy, captains of 10, captains of hundreds, captains of thousands. Such a model, I think, would be much more democratic. By the way, when I say democratic, I mean empowering people to influence the structures they live under. That's what democracy means to me. Um, that's not always what people mean in Israeli society. Sometimes it's used as a synonym for westernization. But when I say democracy, I mean a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. So I think a participatory democracy is far more democratic than a representative democracy. Um, and it's also a more Jewish system because it is found in our sources. We can we we can see even in the Gemara it speaks about the uh, Anshe Knesset Agdola being uh, being sent this is being uh, uh, selected this way. Um, so uh, something like that I think would make demography completely irrelevant and still give every Palestinian the same access to the political process as every Jew. Anyway, there are dates going around. I recommend opening them up to check for bugs just because sometimes yeah uh, but uh, they're there I, I these are the dates i smuggled into the country you know please uh you know don't be afraid of the i there are no bugs in mine there are no bugs in mine nobody gets scared um but uh and there are also what else we have grapes and um pomegranates pomegranate seeds just the seeds May I'll take a grape before. Yeah. Do, do we wash the grapes or no? I wash them. Oh, great. Okay, so I'm going to take a grape and pass them down. Here you go. Pinky, right? Yeah. Mm. So the grapes a, are from here, but go ahead. I have a question. Yeah. So in all of this, mm -hmm. I've been hearing democracy, quality, mm -hmm. fairness. Um, oh, yeah. But I've also, there's been this stream of of almost not erasure but like removal of people's identity you've been saying we would Rosa. remove demography from the equation no remove demography as a um as a concern that determines the direction we go except for the fact that it's our identity that determines our experience yeah so how do you account for that in your model how do you uh, account like the, a woman's experience or non-binary person's experience a, a, a i mean how do you account for that that experience because even though the society transcends and becomes post-colonial mm -hmm. i mean it's not fully post-colonial until everybody becomes post-colonial but then during that process you even from a feminist perspective it's not even fully egalitarian okay so first of all how do you fix okay. how you so, how do you account for that? To to be completely honest, it's a much better question for my wife than for me. 
I could try to address it. What? Yeah, but try. but the second is I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure what that has to do with what I said about demography. Maybe you misheard me or misunderstood something I Maybe said. Maybe I misunderstood. Yeah. What I what know. I meant is I don't think we should be basing our policies or structures off the fear that Palestinians might have more babies than us. Like I think we need to create a political structure that that allows the country to be both deeply Jewish and fully democratic, even if they're a demographic majority. That, that's what I meant when I talked about demography. Um, but uh, but in terms of the issues you're bringing up, honestly, I haven't developed uh, any theory on that. Like, I'm honestly, my wife is. My wife is, Baruch Hashem, like really a, a, a genius and a pioneer in, in developing this stuff. And uh, you could check her out. She's not big on social media, but... Um, no, but it would be important to see how... You know, yeah, you can if you go to intersectional a, and feminist right. theory is, mm -hmm. is pioneering right. in this. Yeah. Right. So so I would say she has right now a post-colonial Jewish feminism fellowship underway. She's going to do more. If you want to participate, you're more than welcome to be part of that. Um, you don't have to be, but no. you can also just read the journals they put out. Uh, but uh, but being a participant, I think, is sometimes more exciting if you have the time for it. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go to our website uh vision we have a magazine visionmag.org but we also have a website visionmovement.org and that's i think where um the the results of her fellowship which is also dealing with like non-binary people and lgbtq people, like like in general like mm -hmm. they're it's not just women's issues but, yeah right um but uh that's where you'll find a lot of their conclusions and uh, some of the work that they're putting out mm -hmm. so it's it, again I, I i i i think that all these issues require real work and yeah. we need to do that work. It's not enough to just like say, like throw out a soundbite. On Palestinian issues, I could speak because I've been working on it over a decade. But uh, on these other issues, I honestly don't feel equipped to speak. But I'm excited about the fact that my wife is leading the initiative to actually theorize and produce like ideas when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. So I apologize that I'm not able to fully answer okay. your question. Okay. And I invite you to be part of the process of creating those answers. That's really, I guess, my main point that we should all be trying to be part of um creating the answers to these things i just have a head start on palestinian issues because i've been involved in it right yeah. right no i was just curious because you've been talking about palestinians as a, as a monolith right and jews as a monolith there's mm -hmm. more that's true that's there's a, more to that that's 100 like true the, those social structures are very real mm -hmm. and part of the post like becoming post-colonial deconstructing those things is part of that process yeah. and you can't bring everybody along unless you get rid of, you know, beyond what, you know, the way the government is structured. There's more than just the government. There's the mm -hmm. economics, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 mm -hmm. the social system. The, even our own faith ha has this problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, it's challenging. But I like these challenges because it gives us an opportunity to participate in history in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I like about all this. It's that history is not over, despite what, you know, we told ourselves in the 1990s, right? The end of history after the Soviet Union uh, fell history is not over and we have the ability all these challenges give us the ability to actually play meaningful roles in history to be real characters in the story of our people so i so in terms of my vision of our relationship in the future which i think you asked me about before right my for me the my, if for us and the palestinians to have peace we have to care about what's important to one another we're not trying to undermine each other. We're not trying to find ways to win at the other's expense. And if we have it, look, it, it's important to us. It's been important to us for thousands of years. 
to have what at least we experience as a Jewish state. I don't require Palestinians to experience it as a Jewish state. Uh, and and right now, if we poll Palestinians and ask them if they'll accept a, a Jewish state, they'll most likely overwhelmingly say no, because their only experience of the Jewish state has been oppressive. But if if we but but whenever I, I speak to Palestinians and I um, express what I think it means to have what a Jewish state means in my mind, uh, they don't seem to be opposed to that. Uh, but I'd like to have the type of state that we those of us who need a Jewish state, not every Jew necessarily wants one, but the Jews okay. who do want one should experience our country as a Jewish state. And those who aren't interested in that should barely notice and be experienced. Again, be because we all live in our subjective perception of reality, because we're all having, even here tonight, we're all having subjective experiences that are different from one another. Because we all live in our subjective perse perspective, it's, it's possible to create a, a structure that's experienced differently by different people based on their narrative. It could play a different role in their movie. So what I'm interested in is creating a one state reality that's subjectively experienced one way by us and another way by Palestinians, but in a way where we're allies and in a way where we care about what's important to each other. And if we have such a situation and we begin to suspect that Palestinians are seeking to use the democratic process to take away something that's important to us, then we don't have peace. Then we're still enemies. I'm interested in a situation where we're not enemies anymore. And that means that that there's not a, if we're not enemies anymore, then there's no longer a desire on the part of the Palestinians to take away something that's important to me, especially if it's not othering them. Meaning right now I could appreciate the need to end the Jewish state on the Palestinian behalf because what they know as a Jewish state is oppressive. But if it's not oppressive and it's merely fulfilling our needs without infringing on them, then for them to try and undo it would be an act of war against me. I don't know. That's Honestly, I'm not sure that uh, I think that's really... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't think that, that that point really applies to the situation we're talking about. I think if we're talking about transitioning from a situation where we're at war with each other, we've been at war with each other for roughly 102 years, 103 years. Um, and we move towards a situation where we're living together in a democratic one-state reality that we experience subjectively as a deeply Jewish state, and they're experiencing it as a democratic society where they have full inclusion and full equality, and they seek to to still in that situation, uh, not it's, it wouldn't be all of them. Let's say there is a Palestinian or a Palestinian group within that society that is still wants to take away something that's important to us. Then I would say that's a that's an act of aggression. You could disagree, and there would probably be people who disagree in such a scenario, but I I feel pretty good about my conclusion. In my experience, in my experience, the concept of a nation state is is not central to Palestinian aspirations, something they were told in the 90s would help them get to their aspirations, but not uh, actually like their core aspirations. But I do, I, I have no problem with Palestinian identity being expressed in the state as well. Meaning I think when, when we talk about our identity and they talk about their identity, we're talking about two very different conceptions of identity, which is important to keep in mind. When we talk about Jewish identity, we're talking about a group of people that essentially descends from the same tribal ancestors. 
Like we have ancestors who are buried in Hebron. We have the 12 tribes. We believe ourselves to be like a, it's a very primordialist understanding of national identity, actually. Um, and, and the people who join us along the way, like there's always been a process for outsiders to become insiders, etc. But when Palestinians talk about Palestinian identity, they don't consider themselves to be the descendants of the same group of ancestors. They understand Palestinian identity to be the indigenous peoples of Palestine throughout time, including the ancient Israelites, including the Canaanites, including the Jebusites, including the Philistines, including crusaders who just stuck around and absorbed into the population. Um, so I think that the on, on the one hand, the fact that we have such different conceptions of national identity make it harder for us to understand each other and make it easy for us to deny each other's identity and story. But on the other hand, I, I think the silver lining is it creates a lot of space for both of us to feel our identity expressed in the same structures and polity. Um, well, I would be more, I, I'd probably use the word partner instead of minority. And especially since they're not really such a small minority, they're whatever the numbers are, they're roughly almost equal to us. But, um, but, but I think it, you know, it, it, we have to also acknowledge like how we're going to get there. Like right now, the power dynamics favor us overwhelmingly. We don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure most Israelis understand power dynamics, but they do favor us. Uh, that means we have to make the first move towards building trust. Like we have to, take the first steps. And it's hard for us because most of us, I mean, th this is part of how anti-Semitism works. We always think we're punching up even when everybody else sees us as punching down, right? Like, like you know, whether it's Palestinians, whether it's Kanye West, like we're perceived as punching down when we think of ourselves as punching up. And um, because we think of ourselves as more vulnerable than we really are. And we're perceived by outsiders as more powerful than we really are. But opposite the Palestinians, we are powerful, even if we don't know it, we're powerful. And that means we have to make the first move towards building trust, but it also means that it's them who are being absorbed into our system. And maybe we'll change that system and maybe we'll make um, alterations, you know, to either um, cater to their needs or to the new situation of us being allies in one land, but they're coming into our system. And by the way, I'm open to a lot of like especially cosmetic changes. I'm less interested in the skin of the state being Jewish and I'm more interested in the organs and the skeleton of the state being Jewish. And and I think what, what Palestinians feel othered by often is the skin of the state being like very hard Jewish, like very like, you know, that flag doesn't represent me. That national anthem doesn't represent me. Like that national symbol doesn't represent me. Uh, whereas I think those things, I if we can have our identity expressed at a deeper level uh, and such a deep level that is not necessarily visible to most people, but, but visible to those who care about a Jewish state, then I think we can talk about letting go of some of the like surface level, like national symbols. Uh, I, I plan to challenge them with trying to figure out what the next goals of Jewish history are and how they can be uh, participate in formulating what a post-Zionist Jewish liberation movement looks like. And, and really not, no, well, I think, I, I think where they are now is, um, is on defense, right? They're on defense because the activist community is for the most part antagonistic towards them and towards Israel. Um, 
the the, the conversation. They, I want to help them understand the conversations that are taking place. What you know, because a lot of people, a lot of students in pro-Israel spaces, don't really know what settler colonialism even is, or or what this accusation of apartheid even means. Meaning, for me, honestly. I'm less interested in arguments over whether or not Israel is technically apartheid. And I'm much more interested in making sure Israel doesn't even look like anything that's kind of similar to apartheid. Right? Like I think arguing over whether Israel's technically an apartheid state misses the point. Because if we're even confusable with apartheid, we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're gonna be able a lot of the a lot of the what we're gonna to try to train them to do is to tell the story of the Jewish people in a language that people in the activist community can understand. Because right now, one of the challenges we have is that our story is a very complicated story that doesn't match anyone else's. Like there's no other example I know of of an ancient people that was destroyed coming back to life two thousand years later, often using colonial methodology. But like meaning you can look at Zionism as an indigenous people's liberation movement, but you could also look at Zionism as a colonial project originating in Europe. Both are technically true. There's data and facts to support both arguments, and it's because we're unique in history. So I think because we're unique in history and our story is a difficult story for most people who are not us to understand, um, there you, it's important to train our campus activists to be able to share that story in a way that people can understand and can support. So that will probably be the the major thrust of what I'm teaching them. Thank you. Okay, so we still have pomegranates for anybody who wants, and uh, <laughs> two more types of wine. And uh, but no one's a hostage. I hope everybody's been enjoying this. And uh, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.